John chapter 17. We've been continuing this series on the night that changed everything. This look at discipleship as Jesus taught his 11, 12, minus 1. One left the room that night, Judas betraying his master. And he continues teaching them. Then he stops and he prays for them. That's what we get into tonight in John chapter 17. We're going to consider something tonight called choice. Life is a series of choices, as we know, but what about those who make all the wrong choices? Consider this fella. His name is Fred, and Fred inherited $10 million. The will, however, provided, not bad, huh, that he had to accept it either in Chile or Brazil. He had to make the choice. He chose Brazil. Sadly, it turned out that in Chile he would have received his inheritance in land on which uranium, gold, and silver had just been discovered. Once in Brazil, he had to choose between receiving his inheritance in coffee or in nuts. He chose nuts. Too bad, or nuts. The bottom fell out of the nut market, but coffee went up to $1.30 a pound wholesale, unroasted. Poor Fred lost everything he had to his name. He went out and sold his gold watch for the money that he needed to fly home. It seemed that he had enough for a ticket to either New York or Boston. He chose Boston. When the plane for New York taxied up, he noticed it was a brand new 747 with red carpets, chic people, and wine-popping hostesses. The plane for Boston arrived. It was a 1928 Ford tri-motor with a sway back, and it took a full day to get it off the ground. It was filled with crying children and tethered goats. Over the Andes, one of the engines then fell off. Our man Fred made his way up to the captain and he said, I'm just a jinx on this plane. Let me out if you want to save your lives. Give me a parachute. The pilot agreed, but added, On this plane, anybody who bails out must wear two parachutes. So Fred jumped out of the plane As he fell dizzily through the air, he tried to make up his mind which ripcord to pull. Finally, he chose the one on the left. It was rusty and the wire pulled loose. So then he pulled the other handle. The chute opened, but its shroud lines snapped. In desperation, the poor fellow cried out. You'll guess his background. St. Francis, save me! A great hand from heaven reached down and seized the poor fellow by the wrist and let him dangle in midair. Then a gentle but inquisitive voice asked, Well, which is it, St. Francis Xavier or St. Francis of Assisi? (laughs) That poor guy. On the surface, it may seem like Life is just a series of choices that we make that seem sometimes haphazard and random. In fact, we have a tendency to view our own salvation that way, to view it as saying, well, I just made the right choices, that poor guy made the wrong choices. Or to put it in Indiana Jones vernacular, I chose wisely, he chose poorly. And we can sort of look at our salvation in tracing certain steps We were lost, we felt lonely, we started searching, we heard the gospel, and then we made the right choice. Well, that's true from a human perspective. 
But that's only part of the truth. We get the whole truth from the divine perspective, beginning in verse 6 down to verse 10 about our salvation. I call this the anatomy of discipleship, or as the sermon calls it, pulling back the veil on discipleship. Let's look at our verses and then we'll go back over them. That's how we usually do it. Verse 6, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they kept your word. Now they have known that all the things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them. They have known surely that I came forth from you, And they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. This eavesdropping on this prayer between Jesus and his Father is very revealing. Jesus is acknowledging certain facts of the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the disciples, the believer. We can broaden that out to all disciples. Now, uh, a bit of a warning as we jump right into this. This is considered controversial. You may not know that. You may have not even entered into this controversy ever before or had a discussion on this stuff. But in theological circles, you're going to come across it at one point or another. Because you are seeing discipleship tonight through not human lens as much as through the divine eyesight. And what, what this prayer does as Jesus talks to the Father about you is it, it lifts your salvation above the realm of just personal choice or personal self-determination. Something else is going on. And basically put, there are three sections, three truths I want to bring out. Three parts to it. Let's put it this way. The Father reserves you. He chooses you. You are His. The Son reveals God to you at some point. Reveals the truth to you. And then the third part is you respond to that. Now go back to verse 6. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. And notice this, they were yours. You gave them to me, they have kept your word. Then again in verse 9, I pray for them, I don't pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me for, they are yours. Now now to sum this up, this is how it works. You belong to God, you may not have known that, until you made the choice, but you belong to God. You're reserved, predestined, elected. He took you out of the world system. He gave you to Jesus Christ. Now these are the holy mysteries of election and predestination, and it can be some pretty heady theological stuff, but I want you to latch on to it. Don't just put it out of your mind and say, this has nothing to do with me. This has absolutely everything to do with you, and you ought to walk out of here elevated with the fact that God chose you before time. The disciples, to sum this up again, the disciples were the fathers by election. Then the father gave them to the son, and the son paid the price on the cross for atonement. Now we have a tension here. We have a tension between two truths that are in the Bible. Both of them are in the Bible. 
Truth number one, God's choice. Truth number two, your choice. God's predetermined choice against your determined choice. See, if you read the New Testament with an open mind, you see both of these. On one hand, you see all of these references to calling you to make a choice about God, a decision for Christ. For instance, and this is an Old Testament, but it segues into the New. Back in Joshua 24, Joshua at the crossroads of the nation told his people, choose this day whom you will serve. In the New Testament, both John the Baptist and Jesus began their ministry with the same message. Repent, that's human choice, for the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Matthew 11, Jesus said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. That's human choice. To the religious leaders, knowing their decision, he said, you are not willing to come to me that you might have life. That's the choice you've made. You don't want eternal life. In John chapter 7, Jesus said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. For as the scripture says, whoever believes in me out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Then again, Revelation 21, the Spirit and the Bride say, Come, let him who hears say, Come, to him who thirsts, come. Whoever desires, let him come and take of the water of life freely. So there you have human choice. It's up to you. It's in your court. What are you going to do? On the other hand, clearly taught in the Bible, it tells us that that choice is not wholly on our own that God has a lot to do with us making that choice. That's His choice. That is, you and I were selected out of the world system to belong to God. Your salvation began before you were born. John chapter 6, Jesus told His disciples, No one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws him. You can't come to God unless God draws you to Jesus. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, it says, He chose us in Him before the creation of the world. Imagine that. Before God spun the universe, He had you on His mind. And He made that choice way back then. Now, I want you to listen carefully to this. Do you remember the story in the Bible of... Jacob and his brother Esau, you know, Rebecca got pregnant and she was struggling and she says, I don't know what's going on, but my, I mean, I'm having all sorts of problems with this pregnancy. God spoke to her and said, well, it's because there's two nations in your womb. That would do it. Go into an ultrasound. He doesn't say you have twins. You have two nations in there. Two peoples will come from your own body. And he said, the older will serve the younger. Now as it goes on, Esau, who's the older, makes his own choice to sell his birthright to Jacob. But it was already determined the old shall, older shall serve the younger. So listen to this now in Romans chapter 9. It's Paul's commentary on that. For the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand... 
Not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. So here you have sovereign election and man's choice, and they seem like completely irreconcilable and opposite truths. And from a human perspective, they are. The problem cannot be solved by our finite minds. We have what theologians call an antinomy. An antinomy is two truthful conclusions that seem to oppose each other. Conclusion A, conclusion B, both seem true, but when you hold them up to each other, they seem to contradict. It's not just in theology, it's in science. You have an antinomy in physics. For instance, light. There's evidence that light consists of waves. There's also evidence that light consists of particles. But it's not apparent how you can have something existing as a wave and a particle at the same time, but there's the evidence that they do. So what do we do with these truths in the Bible? And you get it as you listen. You eavesdrop on this intimate prayer of Jesus with His Father. They're yours. You have gave them to me. They received your word. What do we do about that? Do we fight each other? We draw out theological swords. People have done that for centuries. The Calvinists against the Arminians. And the hardcore Calvinists will emphasize election apart from human choice. And the hardcore Arminian will emphasize human choice apart from election. And they fight each other. And the hardcore Calvinists won't evangelize lest I'm preaching the gospel to somebody that's not God's elect. Oh no. But then the Arminian runs around thinking, I had my salvation one day, I think I lost it the next day. They're at odds with each other. I'll tell you what I think we ought to do. We ought to let the tension remain. That's what we ought to do. You need them both. A suspension bridge is held up by opposite tension, pulling against each other. Takes one part of that away, it will collapse. Take human choice away, the theological bridge will collapse. Take sovereignty away, the, the bridge will collapse. These are truths held in tension. Let the tension remain. In fact, Jesus does exactly that. He combines both of these truths when he says in John chapter 6, verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will in no means cast out. You have election, you have choice brought together in one verse. Concerning Judas Iscariot, Jesus does the same thing. Truths held in tension. Truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. You have sovereignty. You have human choice. Or, as I recall, Peter in Acts chapter 2 said the same thing. Concerning Jesus, he said, Him being delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God, you by your wicked hands have crucified and slain. You are responsible. God has made a choice in advance. I say, let's harmonize, not polarize. We need both. On one hand, God doesn't irresistibly grab you while you just sit there, do whatever. On the other hand, God isn't hiding that you have to find Him beside, behind some weird place. 
It's up to you. No, it's both. It's a combination. I've given you the example before. It's like a drowning man. You throw out a rope to him. He has to grab a hold of it. In election, God throws out the rope and draws you to himself, to the Son. In human choice, you have to grab a hold of that rope. Both are true. So we have an imponderable, an antinomy. We have truths held in tension. Let me add another factor that it helps me at least. When God does this, there is an element in His divine mind called foreknowledge. He makes His choice based upon foreknowledge. He knows everything in advance. Romans 8.29 For those that God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to His Son. God foreknew, prognostico, is the word. He knew in advance. You know, we talk about a prognosis today as a good guess. But since God is omniscient, knows everything, it's not a good guess. It's a fact. He knows it in advance. Let's say I stand up here tonight and make a prediction. I say, President George, or I say, George W. Bush will become president. You'd say, big deal. Past history. A year and a half ago it happened. As far as your salvation is concerned, same thing. It's a rerun. God has already seen it. He knows everything in advance. He knows the choice that you're going to make. Psalm 90 declares, We spend our years as a tale that has been told. That's God's advantage. He can see and hear and know all of the factors of life well in advance and all who will respond. So Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, We are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Now, if you try to explain it all, you'll probably lose your mind. But you explain it away, you might lose your soul. Both of those are taught in the Bible. God's choice, your responsibility, and your choice. So, you can study it, you can wonder at it, you can marvel at it. I think it's best to just enjoy it. It means, hey, God chose me, yes! Do I grasp it all? No. Will I lose any sleep over it? No. I'll rejoice that God chose me. I won't argue with it. God loves you. Why? Enjoy it. Like Charles Spurgeon used to say, God chose me before I came into the world because He certainly never would have chosen me afterwards. (laughs) That was His simple way of trying to deal with the complex problem. So the Father reserves... You belong to Him even before you came to Christ. You were selected. There's another part of this. The Son reveals then God to us. And then we have to do something about it. Verse 6, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have kept your word. We've told you before the word manifest means to show forth. Jesus came to show God off to the world. To to give the final message, this is what God is like. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. That's why he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. When you see Jesus weeping, you see God who weeps over a lost world. When you see Jesus healing people who are diseased, you see a God of compassion who's touched with our infirmities. When you see Jesus teaching the multitudes, you see a God who is concerned that we are educated in proper truth. 
In looking at Jesus, you see the heart of God. He came to manifest God to us. As somebody put it, God, Jesus is God spelling himself out in language men can understand. Now, through all of the ages, God has revealed himself. Right? He revealed himself in creation. He tells us in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. That's God's voice. God has revealed himself through the law at Mount Sinai, through the prophets, through visions, through miracles. But God's ultimate message to the world is in the form of Jesus Christ. You might say Jesus is the last word. Hebrews 1, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the prophets by the fathers, or to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us and it's in an aorist tense, once and for all, spoken to us by His own Son. Jesus Christ is God's last word to humanity. It's the ultimate revelation. He came to manifest God to the world. So we don't have to wonder, oh, what's God like, man? I picture God sort of... You don't have to do that. All you have to do is look at Jesus, read about Jesus, and we go, ah, I get it. He's the final word So, if you're looking for God, I'm here to tell you, you don't have to look any further. Well, I'm going to check Christianity out and see if that's cool, and then I'll check something else out. Maybe the Koran, that came later. Maybe the writings of Ellen G. White, she came later. Maybe the Mormon doctrine, that came later. That's the point. Jesus is the final revelation of what man needs. I came, I have manifested your name to the men you have given me out of the world. So he reveals God to them. One of the ways he does is he reveals truth to them and to us. Verse 8. There's an emphasis on this, you'll notice. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you. Uh, Scoot down to verse 14, even though it's not in the scope of our immediate text. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And then look at verse 17. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Now, Jesus is the final word. He's the living word, but he also authenticates the written word. In fact, you read that, don't you, in the Bible? How often does Jesus say, it is written? And he points back to the Old Testament, the word of God, the written scripture. And he even said, don't think that I have come to destroy the law. I haven't come to destroy it. I've come to fulfill it. Sixty-four times in the New Testament, Jesus refers to the Old Testament. He authenticates the word that God gave in times past, the scriptures. And now, go back to chapter 14 for just a moment. We've already covered this in this series, but since we're talking about it, let's just refresh our minds with what Jesus says about what he anticipates. Verse uh, 24 of chapter 14. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while being present with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, 
He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Jesus is anticipating the writing of the four Gospels by saying this, that the Holy Spirit will assist them in bringing those things to remembrance. Now look at chapter 16, beginning in verse 12. He says, I still have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. So the question is, when are we going to hear them? If the time's up, this is your last message, you're leaving, you have many more things to say, well, notice. However, when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will tell you things to come. I think in that verse, Jesus anticipates the writing of the epistles through Paul and Peter and John and the book of Revelation. Things to come. He authenticates then the written word of God. Now, we noticed something. We skipped over it, but we just noticed that Jesus calls the word of God truth. Your word is truth. Not it tells the truth or it is true. It is truth. That is, it is the very essence of truth itself. So when you receive God's truth, that's how your faith grows, right? Verse 8. I have given to them the words which you have given to me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Receiving the truth of the Scripture causes our faith to grow. That's how it works. You don't close your Bible and pray for faith. You open your Bible and let faith develop. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So as we receive the Scripture, receive the truth, that's how our faith grows. And when it does, you're a secure person as you receive it and believe it, as we're going to close with in just a moment. But you know what the world is doing? And and churches with liberal theology are doing this. They're setting this according to this. They're saying, well, I believe this and I'm going to find something that proves what I believe. Instead of saying, I'm going to find out what this says and submit myself to it. It's like that little old village in Switzerland I heard about. They had a clock in the town square and the the glass broke eventually. And so what people started doing is setting the clock, since they could reach in and grab the hands, setting the clock according to their own watches. Pretty soon no one knew what time it was. Because everybody's time was just a little bit different. Nobody knew the accuracy anymore. There was no authority. And when you leave the authority of what Jesus himself relied on and taught, then all I can say is you're wishy-washy. It's called Dalmatian theology. You believe it's inspired in spots. This spot is inspired in that spot, but that isn't. We'll throw that out. So it's up for grabs. There's one final phase to pulling the veil back on discipleship, looking at the anatomy of it. The Father reserves, the Son reveals, the follower must respond. The follower responds. A follower, a disciple, is a responder. A disciple does something about what he or she sees and hears. Otherwise, they're not a disciple. They respond to it. I want you just to think about this question. In fact, ask yourself this question Anytime you open your Bible, anytime you read truth, anytime you hear a sermon, anytime you hear a tape 
or a radio message that has biblical truth, ask yourself this question. So what? So what? I've heard this truth. So what? What am I going to do about it? Am I going to respond to it or not? Now notice this response. It's in really three phases. Receiving the truth, verse 8. Believing the truth is mentioned at the end of verse 8. And then practicing the truth. Let's look at it. Verse 8. I have given them the words which you have given me. But it doesn't stop there. They have received them and have known surely that I came forth from you. The word receive means to accept, to grab a hold of. It's the Greek word lambano. It, it could be translated to, to pick up and carry. You know, when you throw a football in a game, there's a receiver. He grabs it and he runs. And that's really the idea of the word. The truth is given to you. You receive it and you run with it. You grab a hold of the truth and you go for it. Simply put, it means that you will sit long enough to think about and ponder the truth and let the truth into your heart. That's the first step. You let the truth do that. You let the Bible do that. Tyndale House Publishers, which is my publisher, put out this little survey. They said 90% of Bible readers feel at peace all or most of the time compared to 58% who read it less than once a month. Isn't that interesting? 92% of frequent Bible readers report knowing a clear purpose and meaning in life as compared to 69% of infrequent readers. Some are receiving it. Some have no time for it. The first step is Jesus, when he reveals, is we receive. But reading it and receiving it is only a small part of it. You've got to believe it. Verse 8. It says, And they have believed that you sent me. So we receive the truth. Then we have to agree with it. The seed of truth is planted in the soil of our heart. We go, yes, that's mine. I'm going to believe that. I'm going to stand on that. That's belief. I'm going to make it my own. Listen to this scripture in 1 Corinthians 15. The first two verses, you see the combination of receiving and believing. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, past tense, and in which you stand present tense, receiving and believing, by which you are also saved if you hold fast the word which I preach to you. That's how we began, right? We heard truth. We received it. We believed it. We believe the truth about ourselves. The Bible says we're sinners. We believe the truth about Jesus. The Bible said He's the Savior. We put the two together and said, yeah, I'm going to do something about that. I'm going to believe that. I'm going to grab a hold of that and stand on it. That's how we begin, but that's also how we grow. That same process of receiving and believing truth is how Christians become mature. You know this? It is possible to sit under great Bible teaching and never grow at all. Did you know that? In fact, you can become worse by receiving but not believing it. You're open to it, but eh. It's pretty soon you've deflected it so much, it's eh. You want to know a good example of that? Judas. Did he hear any good Bible teaching? The best. 
Did he ever hear a great preacher? The best. For three and a half years, he saw and heard what only 11 others saw and heard. But he didn't receive. He didn't believe. There's no faith mixed with that. And it's possible to let our hearts grow hard. Jesus gave a parable, did he not, about a guy who sowed some seed? The seed is the Word of God, he said. And some of the seed fell upon hardened soil. As soon as they heard it, they went, eh. The birds of the air, Satan, plucked it away. Then Jesus said, the second group received it, but they were in shallow soil. Pretty soon troubles mounted in their lives, and they fell away. They received it emotionally. They got all excited about it. There was no depth. The third group received the Word, but the cares of this world, riches, other things choked up the seed. Only one-fourth of the people that heard in that parable were considered good soil, where they took it in. They not only received it, they believed it, and they bore forth fruit, Jesus said. Some 30, some 60, and some 100. Let's close then with that final response. It's not just receiving. It's not just believing. The third is always behaving, practicing. Verse 6, I'll read just this phrase instead of fishing it out of the rest of the chapter. I have manifested your name to the men who you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me. And they have kept or obeyed your word. Folks, it is not enough to admire the Bible. It is not enough to underline it and to study it. It must be kept. It must be applied. A disciple isn't just a learner. A disciple is a liver. And I don't mean the organ. It's somebody who lives it, who practices it. There's a problem in the church I want to address as we close. The problem as I see it is we don't really believe what we believe. We don't believe. Our practical theology can be miles apart from our formal theology. We can run around all day long saying, Jesus is Lord. Listen to how I sing it. Listen to how I study it and underline it. But in real life, we don't always believe Jesus is Lord. There's this partition that we develop. We we do it gradually, but we do it. We can say Jesus is Lord formally, but is Jesus Lord if you're sleeping around? Is Jesus Lord if you're leaving your husband? Is Jesus Lord if you're delving into pornography? No. The truth is you're saying Jesus is Lord, but you're really living. You are Lord. Jesus is Lord as long as it doesn't conflict with your own personal desires. So, Receiving, believing, and keeping the Word. You've heard the saying many times, it's not how high you jump, it's how straight you walk when you hit the ground. It's not, how great was the worship service today? Let me grade it from 1 to 10, I'll give it a 6. The real power comes in Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, living out the truth that we hear every single week. That's a disciple. And without that, there is no true discipleship. He who says, I know him, but doesn't walk in the truth or in light is a liar, John said. And the truth isn't in him. There was a little girl. She was five years old. 
And her parents had company over. And she was a princess. She was so polite and so sweet until they left. She turned into like a demon. (laughs) Very disrespectful, very disobedient. And the mother said, Christy, darling, what happened to you? You were so sweet when company was here. Then you act like this. Why? And Christy answered and said, Well, mother, you don't use your company silver all the time, now do you? saying, if you don't do it with silverware, I don't have to do it with my life. And I think a lot of Christians do that. On Sundays, we're vigorous worshipers. We bring out our silverware. But the rest of the week, we partition our life, and we don't really believe what we believe. I close with this poem. A lion met a tiger as they drank beside the pool. Said the tiger, tell me why you're roaring like a fool. That's not foolish, said the lion with a twinkle in his eye. They call me king of beasts because I advertise. A rabbit heard them talking and ran home with a streak. He thought he'd try the lion's plan, but his roar was just a squeak. A fox came to investigate and had lunch back in the woods. So when you advertise, my friend, be sure you've got the goods. Cute little poem, but I want you just to think about that. Speaking of advertising, is it false advertising to say, I'm a true follower, Christian, lover of Jesus Christ, when you don't receive, believe, and submit to what His words and truth is? In fact, I've witnessed a lot of believers and as I look at their life and they tell me they're Christians, my first response is, please don't tell anybody. (laughs) All it will do is give the kingdom of God a black eye. Where is the transformation? Where is the change? That's true discipleship. The Father reserves, the Son reveals, and all of that is proven by the response of the disciple. Heavenly Father, we close on this very thought-provoking note. As the finger of the Holy Spirit is now pointed at every one of us, not just a select few that we would call unbelievers who need a salvation experience, but all of us who make claims that we are truly disciples, how honored we are, picked by you, to be on your team, the winning team. Lord, we have agreed with the revelation Jesus gave to us that we're all sinners, that we need a Savior. And we've responded to that by receiving your word, by believing it, and by obeying it. But not all have. Some of the seed has fallen by the wayside as it was preached. Other seed was seed that fell upon soil that received it very emotionally but there was no depth at all and they fell away in a time of crisis others that truth was choked up by the cares of this world the concern for riches and other things Lord it's our fervent desire that our hearts would be considered good soil as we receive believe and then say Now, by God's grace, things are going to change since I am a disciple. 
It's been stated in so many different ways in your word. Faith without works is dead. That's the clearest one that we know. And I pray, Father, that just as we came to you by receiving and believing, that we would grow in you by receiving and believing your truth and ask, so what? Every time we hear a message. May our practical theology match our formal theology. Bring lasting change, Lord, in your church, in your people. Bring us all to that place of repentance. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.